we're at the house. I have two sons, a one-year-old and the other one who just turned six. <laughs> the one-year-old's name is Dylan, and my older son is Charlie. So, Charlie's with me, um, but my younger one is at daycare. We're playing with the neighbors. Her kids are almost identical in age, and they're both with us. So, her younger one, who's also one, is on our, playing on our porch. My dad pulls up, and my one-year-old, again, his name's Dylan, my dad looks at him and says, Dylan, I see you up there, so there you are. And I said, Dad, that's not your gran grandson. <laughs> and he goes, oh, really? And I said, yeah, this child is white. Welcome to the Damned If You Do podcast, where two cousins share our experiences growing up as children of immigrants and how we navigate the world today as teachers, mothers, and women of color who have something to say. And so now I suspect if I took the other child, whose name is Hayden, to my dad's and spent like the entire day there, I mean like at least five hours, I don't think my dad would even suspect that that wasn't his grandson, not even for a second. And just to give you a little more context, my son has brown hair uh, and brown eyes. Um, the other baby, which is the which is the one my dad actually saw, um, is blonde and blue eyed and like looks it, gorgeous baby looks straight out of Sound of Music and looks there absolutely nothing, nothing like my child. Absolutely, this is so your dad. To not recognize his own grandson. A hundred percent. Hey everyone, it's Praise and Linda. We are back. We're back at it. It is 12.26 a.m. Because for some reason this is the only time Linda and I can get it together. Um, Without our families. Yeah, exactly. We are uh, hanging out at in my dining room trying to... Talk about some really awesome and deep shit. Yes, that's right. <laughs> the problem is, you know, when it's this late, listen, you're getting the real us, okay? We are not hiding. We are not mincing words. You're going to get the truth. Absolutely. There's there's no performance here on this end. We're too tired to do that. <laughs> we keep... I, I, like, repeated the word actually, like, seven times, so then I had to start over. This is the state of being, okay? So you're going to get the real deal. Um, so we've been gone for like 10 months. It's It's been a while. Uh, I swear we have a good reason. and uh, But we're coming back with a really strong episode. Yep, that's the hope. Uh, and, well, good reasons and maybe not so, such good reasons, but here we are, baby. Uh, we're back at it and happy to be here with you all, all of however many, however many few. Um and ready to have a good time and have meaningful conversation and dialogue with each other. And so this is the one called The Emotions. Just to preview it, we will be talking about grief and trauma and ways in sitting with it, coping with it, um, stepping into it, also stepping back. And 
kind of reflect on how society tends to deal with it and adjust our steps and our stumbles and even the laughter that we sometimes can have through it. Okay, let's do it. So uh, we decided, we kind of cycled through a list of topics we could go through, and there are several. This is not the only one we landed on, but we decided on this one largely in part because my mom passed away in January of this year, and I was very close to my mom. Um, she was such a hero, and... I just, I, I don't think anyone can come close to her as far as how closely I hold her in my heart, as much as she taught me. Uh, I can truly say that she tr really did her best, and I am the recipient of so much love and so much compassion, and, you know, she was my biggest advocate. Uh, so I really miss her, and I think the time that led up to her passing and everything that has happened since has really shown me and helped me learn how to deal with my own grief and also connect with others through their own grief and or trauma, which aren't the same, but they're very closely related oftentimes and just allowed me to exercise a lot of compassion toward myself and one of the best things that you can exercise for others which is empathy um, in the in the many conversations I've had um, about these topics so before we get into like talking about grief I'm just curious how I mean, I'm curious about how everybody grew up in their households. I, like, always try to ask nosy questions to find out. But um, even even with my best friend here, my cousin, I don't 100% know. So the question for you, Lynn, is how did you grow up in your household dealing with emotions? Like, how did emotions come up or not come up? In my home, there were three emotions. <laughs> One, happy. <laughs> Two, angry, and three, quiet. <laughs> and I'm adding quiet to that list. <laughs> and I think that's very pro-typical pro of traditional Asian American, specifically Korean American in this instance. Certainly not all, but I think that that's a common mm -hmm. experience that would probably resonate with other people. Um, and also other folks of different ethnic or racial backgrounds. Yeah, I would say ours is the same. I mean, it's there's lots of memories that I have where we're laughing, mm -hmm. like lots of laughter. I mean, our our home was really loud, so like it's not that we. I, I would I would say the the happy part is you know similar. The angry part is very similar, but the last part is not similar. Like right. our house is not silent or right. quiet. Um, your house definitely was. In fact, when I visited you, I enjoyed sometimes the silence because in my house, it's it was yelling. <laughs> yep. You know, and the yelling is, 
about everything and anything. It's like as if we had like seven children in the house or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like it, that movie where like seven kids are around and everyone's yelling and screaming. Yeah. And that's how it felt sometimes. Even though you only had a brother, but I have no <laughs> siblings. So that right. takes a lot, right? Like there was a lot less noise in my home. There's no one to fight with. Like aside from my parents. Yeah. And that's done so passive aggressively and in silence that <laughs> like it doesn't like take up any space. Yeah. My mom had a, my mom's anger was different from my dad's anger too. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like when my mom was angry, she was like a dog with a bone. She couldn't let it go until that, mm, mm-hmm. like that bone was not. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I don't know how to continue this metaphor. But. It's, it's what a great Dane, if you, if you are familiar with that breed, which is the dog we had, mm-hmm. uh, gets a bone. It's, it's just gone. It's mm-hmm. it's gone, but it's whittled down so much, and then disappears. And then but I don't think it ever, did it ever disappear from your mom. Actually, no, it just layers on top of each other yeah. until she like put together a hodgepodge of angry resentment. That it's the quilt of anger. <laughs> it's the quilt of anger. <laughs> a memory here, two senses here. <laughs> my my father, on the other hand, his anger was explosive. Um, yeah, at times, but yeah, he was, I remember your dad always throwing dishes, like really like, aggressively and loudly in the sink, but into the sink. Yeah, but into the sink, so it wouldn't make too much of a mess. And they were Corel dishes that all Koreans owned. You know, like that unbreakable Corel. Oh my god! Hey, hey, that's there for a reason. Uh, hey, they passed those Corel dishes on to me. I still have them from. I have 19- mine. <laughs> it's it's my favorite favorite brand we should have an entire episode about corral yeah, dishes yeah. it's like those are excellent if you have children and or immigrant oh, yeah. parents who don't know yeah. how to like actually have healthy open conversations <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i my it's i i had lots of emotional conversations with my parents but none of them were fruitful in any way yeah. and none of them helped me process my emotions and i did not understand emotions to the point where I turned 30, I don't know, 39 or so, and I started therapy. Mm-hmm. And she, we were talking about emotions, and I told her, I have two emotions. One is happy slash laughing, <laughs> whatever that emotion is. Mm-hmm. And the second one is anger. And that's it. And then, you know, she spent a long time telling me how anger is not really one of the emotions that, you know, that you want to, ex- like, that anger is there, but it's really only a cover for something. Oh, yeah. I mean, same here. I said the almost verbatim same thing to my therapist. I have a different therapist. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, at this point, I'm sure they're all used to it, right? Like, from specific, yeah. yeah they, from certain come. people, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and my therapist said the same thing, very similar, right? Like, anger is the immediate response, but it's just a scratch on the surface because there's hurt yeah. underneath. I was just having a conversation with one, one of my friends today about anger, and she really relates to this, too, that she grew up either happy or angry, <laughs> and anger was a very immediate thing to grab onto, and I and I was thinking about that with her, and I just was thinking, you know, I think it's something that feels not only familiar, and perhaps in that familiarity it feels safe, but also, you know, there, there's a sense of justice that can be created in your mind, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can be outraged, you can point a finger, you... You can allow yourself to maybe feel like you have some semblance of control. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes we don't, or not as much as we'd like. And whereas, like, sadness is just a surrender. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and in our culture, unfortunately, to be sad 
to be depressed is sometimes equated with, well, you know, come on, you got to buck up. Yeah. You know, you can be sad, but only for today. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because you still have X to do, blank to do, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that happened to you. You know, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm going to see you at practice tomorrow, right? Or I'm going to see you at your job tomorrow, right? Yeah. Or you still have to take care of the kids. And you still have to show up to so many things, right? And and we're scared to show or admit when we really have to put things down, close a door, sit down and, and, and stop. One of the most interesting parts of like going to a therapist, which I didn't, you know, Linda, you've always been like, you were a psych major, okay, in undergrad. Yes, I remember. And you so were I'm always, the expert. You're always you're like pro therapy, and yeah. you've always been getting therapy on and off. I feel like maybe not always, but at least in your adult life, you've right. chased after it more. And I was not as pro therapy. Mm-hmm. I still had that stigma where you, I felt like, but I have good friends. Like, right? Do I really need it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You I can know, work out. I can go like, for a walk. I don't have time. I mean, yeah. there's a, a plethora of excuses that I had used. Right. And then when I finally did decide I need some therapy, I need to, like, work some things out, right? Like, I've had some level of trauma in my life that I need to work things out. And I can't tell you how helpful it has been. Like, it has, I have, I feel like I'm living my absolute best life. And I'm now in my 40s, right? And I... You would think, like, I would say that in my 20s when I was, like, wild and free and not shackled by two children. But I totally feel like now is the time that I feel the most free. And that's because in therapy, my therapist insists that I confront some of these emotions. So especially anger, like, we did, she, she led me through this exercise where... I was over, I was so control, I I had so much anger towards something in my life that I couldn't figure out. Like it was too, the anger was too great. Mm -hmm. So I could, no matter how much she tried, I, she couldn't like uncover what that anger was hiding, you know, because Linda, when Linda said it's a secondary emotion, it's not the primary emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, And my therapist is working so hard with me to try to figure out why I was so angry. Um, But I couldn't explain it. I just couldn't explain it. And so... Mm -hmm. She did this thing where she did, she I feel like you know she experiments on me all the time. <laughs> as good, a good as a good therapist and or teacher does <laughs> exactly, and so she made me um, tell her like, you know, she got me like to close my eyes and to like buy buy into this like process that she was going to use on me, and she said, "I want you to tell me what this anger looks like. Visualize it." I'm like, "What do you mean visualize it? I can't visualize it." She goes, "Just try." Like, if you're going to write a book or something, you know, like, try, how would you draw this anger? How would you draw it out? And I I could not think of an answer. And finally, here's what I said. It looks like, you know that TV show Lost? (laughs) Remember that smoke monster? Okay, the, like, big, it's just, like, a lot of black smoke, and it's, like, running around the island or whatever, whooshing around the island. And I'm like, I feel like it looks like that. It's a big smoke monster. And she was like, excellent, very good. And then she led me through like visualizing when and why that smoke monster shows up, right? Like what is happening? And so I would give her the situations in my life where this smoke monster exists or is there. And then 
she had me turn to the smoke monster, okay? Like, she had me turn to the smoke monster, look at it, look at it, um, and ask, like, it's it's almost like a weird personal, like, pers- personification exercise. Ask the smoke monster what it is doing for you, okay, and why it keeps showing up. So I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> why? What are you doing here? I, you know, it was like Did you so say it bizarre. out loud? I think so. I can't remember. Um, I can't remember exactly. But I feel like she made me say it out loud. Uh-huh. And the answer that came to me was, I'm here to protect you. And I just, I cannot tell you how overwhelmed with emotion I was. This scary beast that I've been holding in my heart, my body, my mind, whatever. Mm-hmm. It was not the scary beast that I imagined. It was something that was there to protect me. Mm-hmm. And then my therapist asked me, do you want to say anything to the smoke monster? <laughs> she, I don't know. She, <laughs> Liz, I don't know if she called it the smoke monster. But she said, do you want to say anything to your anger? And th- I was shocked by what I said. Totally. I, it, I cannot tell you. I can't emphasize enough how shocked I was. But my, the first thing that came to my mind was thank you. Thank you for being there. Thank you for being my witness. Thank you for being my friend. Interesting. Oh my God, I want to cry right now thinking about it. I, actually, I've, yeah. tell, I've told this story so many times um, to like friends or, you know, family members or whatever. And it makes me choke up almost every single time because it was such a life-changing experience. Mm. The second that was over, like that session was over. Mm-hmm. That anger, like the anger that I was holding on to to that extent was gone. It was mm, gone. Right. And I, I, you know, because I'm a teacher <laughs> and I'm never satisfied with anything unless I know where it came from, the sources, the reason behind sure. it, the person behind You know, I was like, so I asked my therapist a million questions and finally she said, you can look it up, but it's called um, Gestalt Therapy. Mm. So I looked it up and I read all about it and... You know, she said there's some, so it depends on therapists, but in some situations, like using it in a certain way is not helpful for certain people. And the guy who, I guess, gestalt, <laughs> who, you know, experimented with it sometimes didn't have the, didn't have enough empathy to, to use this method. Mm-hmm. But if you use it with the right kind of empathy, it's really healing. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I, I was, I can't tell you how healing it actually was in my life. That anger is, it just makes sense. Like the anger completely makes sense now. So now it's almost like I put it in its place, right? Anger is not bad. And, no. I, and, and I used to be ashamed of how much anger. I didn't realize this at the time, but I carried so much shame for that anger, right? Mm. But once it was put into its place alongside every other emotion, yeah. um, and my therapist always like, there's a place for anger. It's there. It makes you feel bigger. It makes you feel stronger. It's self-protective measures, you know. Right. But she compares it to the movie Inside Out. She's like, great movie, great movie. Yeah. <laughs> anger is there for a reason, but right. it's one of many emotions that are there. Right. It is not the biggest emotion that needs to take over your entire life. And in fact, it's really pointing to something else. It's protecting an emotion that's more vulnerable. Right. So I think sadness is much more vulnerable, right? Or grief is much more vulnerable. Shame, much more vulnerable. Um, for you as a human. So then then the anger comes back to protect that vulnerability. Loneliness, right? Much more vulnerable. I can really um, connect with it. And first, it's it's awesome to hear you say that you're living your best life now. 
And I feel like you're saying that you feel more actualized. You feel yes. more connected, not to your goals or or people or like a thing, but you feel more connected to yourself. Yes, because I do know that I am mediocre. <laughs> and hey, that's a nod to our earlier episode. Check it out if you haven't. You know, if you, it's it was from ten months ago, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like not hard to find because this is literally our fourth episode. <laughs> Uh, so scroll for one second. Uh, but no, I, I think, you know, and again, not to keep talking about my therapist after yours, um, but I, I'm going to because I think he's really helped me in that, even though our therapists, I feel like, are very different and have different styles. Um, something that he's really helped me with is when I'm reflecting on how I have been angry. And I think for me specifically, it's more being critical. Mm. I grew up in a very critical home. Right. And I think uh, it created, and I, I, I don't, I don't want to blame that, but I think it did help um, grow the sense of self-criticism, this, this kind of hypervigilance of how my parents saw me. And, and not that I agreed with it, but, but it, like, it really raised my consciousness of how they viewed me or how others might view me, mm. that, that gaze of others. And it really eventually, that coupled with also I'm sure to some extent who I am and how I may be wired in some ways, although we can learn and unlearn many, many things, much more than I think we realize or care to admit, um, it created this like negative self track in my head that I go through and I go through um, and it's not every it's not all the time but it will pop up and it will pop up when I'm not being my best self or when I feel like uh, like a great injustice has been done to me aka me and my husband fighting my partner and <laughs> usually right and because that's like the most common and most like close to home right and when I'm talking about this stuff with my therapist and I'm like, yeah, I was just too critical again. I said the thing that I could have thought but said out loud. Uh, and it was very messy and it was very negative and it, it was said all wrong and it was said on impulse. Um, and I did not pause and I did not leave the room and I did, I did not show kindness to my partner. And, you know, my therapist is really good about saying to me, yes, and I hear you and you know, that's the part of you that is protecting something mm. of yourself. And while it may not be done in the, in the best of ways, it is really trying to help you. Right. And so being curious about why that's there right. or how it's serving you is a great place to start because that curiosity can lead to understanding. Mm -hmm. And then inviting that part of you to do that for you in different ways. Right. That's basically what he said. Uh, and and this is not like DID, you know, like dissociative identity disorder. <laughs> this is the many selves that we all have being <laughs> the complex human beings that we all are. And um, only a psych major would have said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> and which used to be called multiple personality disorder, okay, but now okay. it's called DID. And so... And I think this is like, I mean, this reminds me of like Brene Brown and all the, all the folks who are doing that kind of wholehearted living, yeah. that framework of really trying to understand different parts of yourself and really being forgiving toward all those selves and really inviting yourself to 
be okay with that messiness and how you are not your best self yeah. a lot of the time and that's really okay but like let's just try let's start to really unpack that and and be curious about it right instead of feeling shame, shame or exactly. um or like just moving forward like as if it didn't happen yeah or you know trying to fix things right away in more like uh i think circumstantial ways rather than being introspective and, and pausing or thinking about it later when you're ready to. You know, um, I, can I talk about the 90 second cycle? Yeah, please do. <laughs> the reason I say that is because I, I spent my entire youth running away from negative emotions instead of being curious, instead of being okay with the messiness, instead of looking into why something is showing, why is my good old friend anger showing up at this moment? Right? Like, I didn't ask why. I felt it coming. It came with a bunch of negative emotions that I couldn't name at the time. And I would run away from all of it. Right? I would just run away from it. Like, and what happens when you run away from those negative emotions, for me, is, is um, depression. So I would say, like, all throughout high school, maybe even starting from middle school, I experienced some level of depression. But a lot of that depression kept, it kept cycling because I felt some anxiety rushing up in my chest and then I was running. Like it was a constant state of running, constant state of like avoiding what's coming. Sometimes you keep yourself busy, right? And you're like, well, let me get involved in these activities or. Oh, let me, yeah. Let mm-hmm. me, or sometimes, you know, and some of those things help. I'm not saying they don't help, right? Activities right. help. Keeping busy helps. Um, having a routine helps a lot. Right? All that stuff helps. But none of that is processed. Right? None of that negative emotion is processed. Well, recently, um, I've learned that there's something called the 90-second rule. And I'm going to talk about... I'm going to actually read you something. So they, so they say, like, you know, neuroscientists and psychologists say that it only takes 90 seconds for a negative emotion to pass through your body and system and that anything after that is something you keep going so like if you don't process that negative emotion in that 90 seconds it just you know like you, you'll like the more you run the longer you prolong that negative emotion mm-hmm. like it'll go down but then it'll come back and so I thought that was an interesting like idea right um, and in therapy my therapist may like she'll kind of figure out what negative emotion it is, right? Or whatever I'm feeling, and she'll make me, she'll say, can you hold it? She uses the word hold it. And so it's almost like we're on pause. Like, I can't even tell the rest of the story. I can't tell, I can't talk about anything else. She's making me hold that emotion. And sometimes even puts on a timer and goes through that full 90 seconds. And I feel all of it. She won't let me out. (laughs) it's an emotional prison of healing (laughs) that leads you to freedom that leads you to freedom yeah and then i you know while i'm holding it i start crying every time um i don't sometimes i don't and it's like she says don't think about it don't intellectualize it don't 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 Mm, go there don't go there no thoughts no like don't don't try to rationalize it you're just feeling it Mm -hmm. so sometimes i'm even trying to name it and she won't let me name it she's just letting me feel it sit in the feeling and I'm like it was very it's very hard when she makes me do this but afterward it's suddenly I can talk about it 
Suddenly afterward, I know that that feeling was shame. Suddenly afterward, I know that the feeling was um, whatever, you know, whatever else I was going through. So a loneliness or whatever, um, a sense of abandonment, rejection. I mean, there's a million things that sh it could have been, and I wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I like, okay, so because, you know, Linda and I are always like, as teachers, we always want to know why that's the case. Is it just a magic number? Well, some, some like scientists or something, <laughs> I forget who, it's some, some Taylor, oh, no, anyway, she, it's some lady named something, something Taylor, she's probably like a doctor of something, I'm like some lady. We, you could tell we did a lot of research. Uh, tons of research, y'all. Um, let's see here. Okay, so they had a stroke, and for some reason, like, having that stroke created some sort of emotional problems, and they... Anyway, they wrote this whole book about it, and this is here's just a little clip to explain the science behind it, or a little excerpt. Essentially, when you look at cells in this... Oh, this is from Psychology Today. When you look at cells in the circuitry of the brain, every reactivity is simply a group of cells performing their function. From the moment you have the thought that there's a threat and that circuit of fear gets triggered, it will stimulate the emotional circuitry related to it, which is the flight or fight or flight reaction. That will trigger a physiological dumpage, it says dumpage, of usually norepinephrine or anger into the bloodstream. It will flush through you and flush out of you in less than 90 seconds. So from the moment you think the thought that triggers that whole cascade of events to the chemical flushing out of you takes less than 90 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so like you are responding to your body at that moment. The body is trying to flush out this negative, you know, um, chemical basically. Mm -hmm. And if you don't let it do it, it's you're, you're going to continue this negative cycle of thinking. Mm -hmm. I thought it was incredible. Like, 90 seconds? Yeah. We're running away from 90 seconds? My, You know, all of us with negative emotions trying to run away from 90 seconds. And people might have spent years, like you, running years. away. What, a, what an amazing insight that sounds so small and concrete, but that could have such large and impactful implications. Yeah. Uh, just to clarify, is this... Is this similar or the same as the stress cycle? Um, you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think a lot of folks um, might be aware or may have heard of the stress cycle. And uh, some folks think there's four, some folks think that there are five, but it is a very biological mm -hmm. cycle that the bodies go through. And here's the thing. You can tell yourself you're over something. Mm. You can emotionally... <clears throat> and mentally put something in a box and push that away. But the body knows, the body remembers, and the body can hold things and let go of things. And the stress cycle is one uh, strong example. I was just reading. So it's not the same as the stress cycle, but it reminded me of that because it's a very biological response in our body. And, uh, you know, if you're not that familiar with it, just very quickly, and you can certainly look up more information later if you'd like, but stage one is the external stressor. Stage two is the internal appraisal that happens 
just before, during, or after the actual trigger occurs. Straight, stage three are the physiological responses that occur within our body. Um, that could be, right, like accelerated heart rate, poor digesti digestion. <laughs> um, your nervous system is just like responding. Stage four is internalization when you begin to become aware of that stress. Uh, and then you're, you might be feeling the physical reactions much more. And stage five, if we go by the five-stage theory, is the stage of coping and doing something that alleviates the discomfort. And, you know, again, mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that people do in this stage, mm -hmm. whether consciously and intentionally or not. That could be anything from running to drinking to addictions to cleaning your home, which is what I do. <laughs> so uh, that addiction is certainly better than others. But like you mentioned before, Praise, mm -hmm. it's not processing. It's mm -hmm. not addressing and really confronting what is triggering that that amount of stress mm -hmm. or grief or or confronting that trauma that you mm -hmm. might have experienced. Uh, and I found on um, a website, it's a UK website, uh, that is titled Completing Our Body's Stress Response Cycle. And that's a, a large part of understanding the stress cycle is that we often don't allow our bodies to actually complete the cycle. Mm -hmm. Because we have maladaptive coping systems, because we don't even necessarily understand what's happening. And then we move forward because society always tells us to move forward, right? Um, I read something that I really liked, which it reads at the very bottom, it's the last paragraph on this website that says, Wellness is not a state of being, it's a state of action. It is the freedom to oscillate through the cycles of being human. Real-world wellness is messy, complicated, and not always accessible. If you sometimes feel overwhelmed and exhausted, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It just means you're moving through the process. Grant your body permission to be imperfect and listen to your own experience. And I think I really listened to that experience and really start understanding how to process negative emotions mm -hmm. when my mom passed away. So I've been thinking about my mom um, a lot today. And, you know, I mean, she passed away in January, so some time has passed. Um, but <laughs> it's still the first year within her passing. So, of course, in some ways it still feels very raw. But in a lot of ways I feel like I've for the first time in my life, really given myself the time, the space, and the patience to be on this journey of grief. Grief, like many other things, is not finite. It is a not a known path that is taken, and it can appear anywhere, at any time, by any moment. At the same time, I think if it's a path that is well-traveled, especially at the beginning of it, it can become a path that feels familiar and safe. And I know that sounds really abstract, um, but perhaps if you've experienced a lot of grief or death, you might know what I'm talking about. And if you haven't yet, you will, because we all do. And um, I, she, I'm, she's on my brain a lot today because I ran into a friend earlier today who... Who, she's my neighbor, actually, and we were just catching up because I hadn't seen her in a little bit. 
And I happened to mention that my mom's passing and she did not know. And she was like, oh my God. And so we talked about it. And I mentioned uh-huh. actually the 92nd yeah. thing that your therapist had recommended to uh-huh. you to tie this all together. And she looked at me and she was like, well, what, what would that look like? And I was like, well, I actually did not exactly the 90 seconds, but I learned how to confront those feelings, confront the deep sadness, confront that that abstract sense of deep anger and sadness and sorrow and longing and loneliness, all the things that somehow are at some point you're you're not even able to pull them apart. It's just this big ball, the the black your black storm <laughs> and or the smoke monster. Mm-hmm. And uh this happened um well, let me give you a little context. My mom uh, really unfortunately suffered from Alzheimer's and dementia for about five years. And then she passed at the beginning of this year. So I will say Alzheimer's is, is a terrible, terrible disease. And dementia is, um, you know, basically your brain is dying and it diminishes one's body, one's mind, uh, to the point where they, you know, eventually, if you have it long enough, and this is heartbreaking, but this is real, um, you can eventually forget how to talk, how to walk, how to eat. Um, It is really, really painful to see someone go through that. And um, so because my mom suffered so much, we were relieved when she passed. But when anyone dies, especially if you love them and close to them, it's really painful and hard. And, you know, this might have been the night before she died. She was already in hospice care in a nursing facility. I was really missing the person she was before, her true self, like five years ago. And I wanted to look at photos and videos of her back then on my phone. And I I had not looked at old videos of her for maybe about four years because I wouldn't allow myself to be reminded of a person who was such a huge, had such an indelible, amazing impression on my life, whom I loved so dearly, was no no longer there. She was gone, 100% gone. And it was very painful for me to revisit someone who was no longer in my life. Right? That mom was gone. The new mom couldn't talk and sat in a bed and was dying and gasping for air and wheezing with me not knowing what breath would be literally her last. And she died also in a very slow way because it took almost three days. Uh, And the night before she died, I decided that I was going to go through that really painful door. This was my 90 seconds Mm -hmm. where I decided just out of curiosity, just out of great loneliness of wanting to revisit her. And I think that probably was because I knew she was about to die. Mm And I, I cried and I wept and I spent about almost an hour looking at those. And it was such a gift. Mm-hmm. And I was so scared to do it. And I pushed myself to do it. And I found her. Mm-hmm. And it was really nice to be able to say goodbye to her after having found her in that way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so this is the example I shared with my neighbor. And, uh, and I'm thinking about how crazy and hard it can be to lose someone and the, the complicated layers of grief. And soon after, I decided to open other doors. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, I decided to read up on grief. Mm -hmm. I decided, I intentionally made the choice to talk about it. I told people. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying I did it the next day, but I did mm -hmm. it in my time mm -hmm. when I knew it would be really hard, mm -hmm. but it would be an honoring of her, and it would also honor the great struggles that I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have to hide. I wouldn't have to hide my feelings. I wouldn't have to hide in a room. I wouldn't have to... Carry it by yourself. Carry it by myself. And it still allowed me to show up, but in different ways. Right. And when I got tired of talking about it, I didn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. When I felt the need to talk about it, I did. And that's really, just like the website tells you, that's really listening to yourself and giving your, yourself permission to figure it out and it be messy. And I think also having good faith in that others around you mm -hmm we'll get there with you. Yeah. Even though they may not necessarily show that understanding or patience or, mm -hmm. or empathy even right yeah. away. Yeah. But that they can get there if you allow them to get there. Right. Right? And so um, something else I wanted to quote <clears throat> is Bell Hooks, who is a person, Praise and I both love, mm -hmm. amazing writer, feminist, activist, author, Educator. Educator, all the things. She's all the things. And Prey shared this passage with me shortly after my mom died. Mm -hmm. And this is from her book, All About Love. And so if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to share it with you. And I think this will help you, especially if you ha if you feel like you've experienced some, some grief. <clears throat> Love knows no shame. To be loving is to be open to grief to be touched by sorrow, even sorrow that is unending. The way we grieve is informed by whether we know love. Since loving lets us go of so much fear, it also guides our grief. When we lose someone we love, we can grieve without shame. Given that commitment is an important aspect of love, we who love know we must sustain ties in life and death. Our mourning, our letting ourselves grieve over the loss of loved ones, is an expression of our commitment, a form of communication and communion. Knowing this and possessing the courage to claim our grief as an expression of love's passion does not make the process simple in a culture that would deny us the emotional alchemy of grief. Much of our cultural suspicion of intense grief is rooted in the fear that unleashing of such passion will overtake us and keep us from life. However, this fear is usually misguided. In its deepest sense, grief is a burning of the heart, an intense heat that gives us solace and release. When we deny the full expression of our grief, it lays like a weight on our hearts, causing emotional pain and physical ailments. Grief is most often unrelenting when individuals are not reconciled to the reality of loss. Love invites us to grieve for the dead as a ritual of mourning and celebration. As we speak our hearts in mourning, we share our intimate knowledge of the dead, of who they were and how they lived. 
We honor their presence by naming the legacies they leave us. We need not contain grief when we use it as a means to intensify our love for the dead and dying, for those who remain alive. I thought that was so powerful. It really helped me. And I think it really helped me understand that grief is honoring those who passed away. Mm-hmm. And it is a way not just to connect with them, but to connect with others. Because grief, we've been talking a lot about sadness. It's really hard to talk about. Yeah. But it's not just because it's individually difficult. It's mm-hmm. societally difficult. because. That's right. Again, we are often messaged in explicit and inexplicit ways or, or conscious or sub, subconscious ways where it's like, you can be really sad and I'm so sorry to hear about that, but I still need to do this. Mm-hmm. You still got to show up to a lot of things. And mm-hmm. I think it's possible to show up in more authentic ways that feel good to us when we can get to a place eventually and whatever that looks like will be different for everyone in sitting with your grief, figuring it out, and then being able to, like, name it and mm-hmm. talk about it. And talk about it to, obviously, those whom you trust, right? Yeah. Like, if you feel grief, like, or you feel that intense sadness, and then you try to, like, ignore it or run away from it or whatever... Not only is it going to hurt your body and your own self and whatever, but it, you're right. It's not honoring to the person because, or to your, you know, to the relationship you had or whatever, because you can't, like, it's like allowing the grief to be there allows that person's presence to be there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because you have to grieve the person you lost, which means right. you're still connecting with them right. in that way. I think that's pretty, and then with others, as you said, but. And and not that you have to even be able to talk about it and say mm-hmm. it out loud and have many conversations about it, right, but just right. an acknowledgement to yourself that yeah. you can, yeah, and you should. It's I, you, it's not something you can actually run away. From. It will catch up to you, you know, in some way, shape, or form. Right. So, what you did, which I thought was so. I don't know if brave is the right word. You know, I don't, it sounds too like glib to be like how brave but I think it was the best thing I could have done for myself. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's incredible to to have gone to make that conscious choice. I'm going to I'm going to feel it. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to feel all the feels. I mean, even like just to illustrate that further, I took a week off um in Chicago Public Schools, they give you 5 days. So again, <laughs> We're get very sorry for your loss, but after we come back and move forward, uh, and I get it. I mean, there has to be a day to things like that, right? Leaves, um, and I, I just kind of wrestled with how do I share this in such a public space? Right. Because work is a very public space oh where, God, like, it's, it's so not family, public. it's not your close friends. But you have to share right? like yourself with hundreds of people, right? Which not everybody has jobs like that. And there's just so much social and emotional interaction anyways in that kind of job. Um, so I just kind of wrestled with the idea, like, do I not tell anyone? Do I tell just my closest friends at work? Do I tell my closest friends and then maybe, like, bring it up to other folks if it happens to come up in, for whatever reason? Mm-hmm. And then I just thought, 
fuck it. I'm just going to email the entire staff. All staff email. <laughs> All staff email, which is like, right, well over 100 people. And I shared that I lost my mom. And I actually shared that passage I just read from Bell Hooks. Because for me, it wasn't just about the death of my mom. It was about me really trying to connect with people and tell them it is okay to grieve. Mm -hmm. Everyone experiences loss. Mm -hmm. Everyone experiences grief. And it doesn't have to happen through the death of someone you love. Hopefully not, right? And so I just wanted folks to feel like we can dialogue about this. We can lean on each other. We can maybe just sit with each other in silence. And that's really helpful sometimes too, Mm -hmm. right? I think grief is one of the deepest, oldest, shared experiences of the human condition that is not talked about Mm -hmm. or processed Mm -hmm. or invited into our lives enough. I really liked how you phrased that. It's... We could have so much solidarity with each other about some of the hardest burdens that we've ever had to carry, and we don't do that hardly enough. Um, and something you were you were mentioning how you know we all experience loss, and that's exactly right. So, as you're talking about grief, and you know, just to before I even talk about this next topic, I Linda's mom was such a huge part of my life. I just want to put that out there into the internet. <laughs> Uh, she is genuinely my hero as well. And she helped, you know, she basically helped raise me and my brother Amos too. And my parents spoke no English. So like they had to, when we were, now we speak for them and we do everything for them. I mean, you know, since I turned eight years old or whatever, but (laughs) prior to me turning eight and, you know, even after, because I couldn't read certain things, um, it was Linda's mom and dad, and mostly Linda's mom, doing so much of the legwork for so many immigrants, um, not just my parents, but for so many. So, And also, she's hilarious. Like, she was so funny, and I, I always looked forward to seeing her and wanted to see her and wanted to be with her. And So, yeah, it was a huge loss to... So, I, it was like... Also, it was like smack during COVID, right? So, like, I couldn't even visit her on the last day because I... I fucking had COVID, <laughs> which sucked. Um, but her, you know, you would think like, okay, let's have a small funeral. People were like, who cares? They all showed up. So yeah. many people showed up to the funeral. And so it's a testament to the kind of person she was. It, it was such a, people have no idea how amazing she is and what a big um, impact she had on everyone, especially our community as Korean American immigrants. But um, that, you know, that being said, Linda and I have been recently talking about this idea of, like, big G grief, like, capital G grief and, like, lowercase g grief, big and little grief, because there's the big events of grief, right? And those take us by surprise and knock the wind right out of us. But then there's so many little moments of grief that... I think we just think, ah, it's nothing. We should just get over it. Just get over it and move on, like like Lynn was saying. And, like, one of the – I have such a solid example of that, which is when um, the pandemic started to happen. I just saw a former student. She's like – and I, she was in my class when, you know, school shut down. And we had a student by the last name of Corona. 
And we were like joking around. We were like, ah, ha, ha, Corona, you got a disease named after you or whatever. You know, like we were just, we didn't even know what we were saying. And when they were like, oh, we're going to shut schools down for safety. I was all like, see you in a week, everyone. Oh, I me mean, too. We were all saying the dumbest. No one knew. No one knew. So uh, because no one knew and I didn't know, certainly, my son's first birthday was in April and the schools shut down in March. And soon after that, everything shut down. Right. Right. But like a month before that, people were talking about the coronavirus. And, but I was like, no, I'm going to reserve, you know, the exploratorium in Skokie (laughs) (laughs) to celebrate his first birthday. Strong choice. choice, um, Affordable choice. Totally. And I, I, I was so excited because, you know, Korean you know, it's in, in our custom, like a lot of East, all three East Asian countries do this, I think. But we have a one year, the one year old birthday is huge, right? There's all these traditions and customs and rituals that you make a tiny one year old go through for the entertainment of all the adults, you know? Oh, it's like a rite of passage into being Korean almost. And um, I had all these things planned. I, I knew the menu, I knew everything. And then when it didn't happen, I. I was like, okay, well, what can you do, right? We'll just have it at home. It'll just be the four of us, like my, me, my husband, my daughter, my son. And um, I put him in a hanbok, and I put all the little items out so that when he crawls toward, you know, he's supposed to crawl toward the items and grab one, and it's to kind of signify the future he might have. If he grabs uh, the pen, he will become a scholar, or if he grabs... An art brush, you know, he or like a paintbrush, he'll become an artist. That sort of thing. If he grabs money, he'll become rich. So it's always the joke that Korean people are like waving the dollar bill in front of the baby, trying to get it to be rich. Um, and so I did it. I did it at home with just the four of us. And it had so little fanfare that I felt so angry. Yeah. <laughs> of course, my first emotion is anger, right? Yeah. I'm like, I was angry at Gary. Why aren't you making a bigger deal out of this? Like, why didn't you take this picture? Why do I have to tell you to take a picture, you know? (laughs) And then Mira was doing something. I'm like, Mira, get over here and participate. And Kieran is trying to take the hanbok off, and he's so uncomfortable. And and then I just felt so upset. Like, I cried so hard after. Yeah, I was so upset. And then I felt stupid for being so upset. Do you know what I mean? Like, the world is shutting down. People are dying. Like, I have students whose parents died. Like, they were, it was, like, so insane. And I'm like, what am I sitting here crying about a, a fucking, like... Birthday. Birthday. A first birthday, you know. Hopefully he'll have many to come. Like, what? what is so upsetting? And I talked about it in therapy, and that was one of the things she said. Like, you you know, when when there is loss, you have to grieve it. You know? And you got... You lost something. You were... This was such an important thing for you and your relationship with your son and your son's induction into the Korean culture, basically. <laughs> I mean, it's his you know, bar mitzvah. It's his bar mitzvah. <laughs> it's his bar mitzvah, you know, except at one years old and it, one year old. It's just all of it. And and she, it's it was nice because she almost gave me the permission to grieve it. Because I was, I kept thinking like, well, who cares? What's wrong with me? Yeah. You know, and I kept trying to brush it off and. But that's, you just have to process it. You can't shame yourself into not doing it, right? Right. The more you process it, the more you connect with others through it, too. Right. And can connect with yourself. Maybe most importantly. Right. And I think that's such a great example that I think is actually really relatable. Yeah. Uh, And 
there's just so many ways that we experience loss, which yeah. can and should warrant grief if if need be. And, you know, to your point about us not grieving more, yeah. uh, I think that is, like you said, or like your mm-hmm. therapist said, we don't allow ourselves to perceive it as real loss. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But there are so many things. Like, this could be anything from job loss to relationships that end to things that we have missed particularly because of the pandemic Mm -hmm. um roads we have not been able to travel Mm -hmm. and i don't mean just physically Mm -hmm. (laughs) travel but like things opportunities that closed and there's just so much you know one of the weird things i've learned about like grief in this way I, i was so surprised that i grieve time that's been lost right in the sense not even just oh i wish i had this time back or this pandemic time back but like even when i know that i'm supposed to make a decision for myself that's good do you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. if i do this thing i you know i need to confront this issue or i need to like i was really resentful about something in my life and i just refused to confront it and years and years and years of resentment and then when i finally did confront it it was such a relief but then I had to grieve all those years that I didn't confront it. Mm. It was so crazy. I'm like, why am I so upset? You know, like the first first emotion is like a sort of relief. But then I was like, now I feel grief, you know. And it's really because I wasn't able to, uh, maybe during that period of resentment, I wasn't feeling safe enough to grieve. grieve. Mm-hmm. But once I did feel safe enough to grieve, I... I realized I have to go through grief again simply because I didn't make a decision fast enough, you know, to confront something. Right. It's like so crazy. It's like so it's abstract almost. Right. But the loss right. of time, the loss of all, all those years where I could have been happier and freer. Right. Um, and I had to grieve it so that I can be happy now. Right. Damned if you do. Damned if you fucking do. (laughs) And then when you do it. Yeah. You know. Wow. It's worth it. You go through the door. Yeah. You realize it doesn't... It's just the period of grief that I think people are scared of. Yeah. And I think, you know... And again, I mean, so much could be said about all these things. And we are going to wrap it up soon. But even trauma. I know you Mm -hmm. and I have had conversations about how... There might be a big T and a small T, right? Right. <laughs> like, trauma has to involve abuse. Not necessarily. No. Right? There's small T traumas all the time. Yeah. That we don't process. Right. And, and again, this isn't... We're not talking about, you know, Karens who, like, act crazy and, like, <laughs> go wild on someone, right? Where, like, you feel like an injustice has been done. This is not about injustices. No. This is about when you feel hurt and sadness right maybe because it's some kind of loss or not and there there's a source for that and there might have been some trauma that you experienced and you know i mean i know this is a weird word but the word you know i think the two words we've been kind of going back to is being are are being curious and I would say, you know, inviting yourself. It's an invitation to look at that for yourself and kind of figure out, well, what's really there? What's underneath mm-hmm. it, right? Like you said earlier, mm-hmm. what do you want to say that 
to that monster? When does that monster appear? Yeah. And maybe that, how is that monster serving you right now? Serve me, monster. <laughs> <laughs> or how has that monster it's been true. serving you? Yeah. And, and you might even feel a loss over that in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But then, like you said, maybe even holding some gratitude or some at least patience and forgiveness toward that, toward those elements within yourself, even maybe toward those sources mm -hmm. in the world that have caused you that grief. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think I want to wrap it up with thinking about one more other thing I talked about with my friend whom I saw earlier today, where she said something interesting. We were talking about how, like, these days there's just an explosion of socio-emotional learning and language, especially with the pandemic, and how all of this stuff was just absent when we were growing up. Like, zero. <laughs> socio-emotional learning was not a term that no. anyone coined until... You know, I would say recently, certainly not when we were growing up. And no. she was talking about how she was like, man, I wish I could go back and teach myself these tools yeah. without having to experience serious loss and trauma. Right. And I was thinking about that and I was like, well, I think the that's why the learning today is can be so powerful. We are creating language, mm -hmm. awareness and dialogue to start understanding ourselves and hopefully inviting that curiosity and that forgiveness into our lives through that, but also connecting with others. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, you know, even if you haven't ex directly experienced trauma and loss, right, you didn't have a parent or guardian who died or someone in your family member, you probably know someone who has. Right. Or other people in your life who have dealt with any number of things, anything from cancer to chronic illness to broken up, broken relationships mm -hmm. to any number of things. And I think that's where social-emotional learning can be really helpful also to, to allow us to practice empathy. Exactly. And learn from others and learn how to listen before mm -hmm. talking and to learn how maybe to sit with others through that right something I've been really um, I've been intentional about in my classes this year is to really grow that culture so I've been doing it for you know a couple number of years now but every year it looks a little different and mm -hmm. uh, what I've been focused on focusing on lately is the power of personal affirmations mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> which always makes people our age kind of giggle because we all grew up with like SNL when you look in the mirror and you're like I'm smart enough what is what does Pat say oh is it Pat no I don't it's not Pat <laughs> <laughs> it was like it's um, another character Stuart Smalley from SNL who would say I'm good enough I'm smart enough and doggone it people like me and he you know stare into the mirror uh, and so I, yeah, it, it, this is very much our, our generation type thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I think most people are like, all right. Right. Great. He was making fun of that. Yeah. Right? He was making like, fun making of that fun culture. Of, right. And I think people are very quick to, you know, um, put it to the side and dismiss it. And I would argue that there is a 
power behind positive self-talk. There is a power behind doing affirmations for yourself, especially if you're like me, who tends to be more critical and grew up in a very critical home. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. uh, might resonate with that. And, you know, things don't just get undone. Things don't just stop, right? We have to intentionally unlearn the things that we have learned. Sometimes we have to disrupt certain patterns of thinking or behavior, right? Or like gently nudge ourselves in other directions. And so um, I've been doing this type of uh, activity where basically I show them, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Headspace. Um, this is a mindfulness app. It's it's phenomenal and it has certain features that are free 99 which mm-hmm. is the best price of all you can also subscribe for membership if you're a teacher you get it all free mm-hmm. and so uh they do these great little videos of showing mindfulness and the importance of it and mm-hmm. the impact it can have mm-hmm. and how to like practice it and so one of their videos talks about the power of affirmations and i show that typically at the beginning of the week And then I created my own slide of affirmations that I actually show the students because I want to give them specific concrete language to start cultivating this kind of headspace and this this kind of spirit within themselves. Um, And so, like, there's a bunch. I'm just going to read you some of them. And I I say, you know, if if nothing's speaking to you right Mm -hmm. now, um, you know, definitely feel free to just land on something that feels good to you right now. So I have things on a slide, you know, as part of my deck. <laughs> it's Google Slides. And uh, um, some of the things that I, I've written, uh, all I need is within me right now. I'm getting better and better every day. I can choose to be grateful. Mm-hmm. I am turning down the volume of negativity in my life while simultaneously turning up the volume of positivity. <laughs> That's a long one, but it's worth it. I am not going to worry about blank and choose myself in peace of mind. Can I say one? Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It says, um, I will not let others control my emotions. Right. Um, I'm healing and strengthening every day. I like that you wrote every day with two as two words because that's grammatically correct. Thank you. (laughs) Shout out right there. I'm affirming you. Uh, Note to self, I'm going to make you so proud. Uh, And the one that I actually have been looking at, Mm -hmm. um, I I always, whatever I ask the students to do, I do myself because Mm -hmm. I always want to model that practice. And so something that I have been just landing on for myself in these Mm -hmm. past three weeks is I am enough. Just that. Just that. I go to it because... I have moments like most people where I feel very self-conscious. I don't show it. I'm not someone who like externalizes a lot, like emotions or like nervousness. I like hold it all inside really quietly and firmly. (laughs) We've been taught very well. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. By our families, by society. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I, or like when I start the negative um, track in my mind, Mm -hmm. I disrupt it. And the more I do this, the quicker I can do this with the simple thought of I am enough. And it's something that I just say to myself and I say to myself. Mm -hmm. And it's not just drill and kill. It's like I think about what that feels like like and look look like. So something that I also tell the students after they have chosen an affirmation is Mm -hmm. I pause and I say, 
So that's abstract. I want you now to think about it more in concrete terms. Mm -hmm. Meaning, what thoughts or ideas mm -hmm. might you want to think about more today that is just going to, to make you feel good and bring positivity toward yourself and, and that you feel affirmed by? Mm -hmm. Alternatively, what are some thoughts and ideas you really might want to just put down for today mm -hmm. and think less of or redirect yourself away from? What people and situations might you want to say yes to today mm. that will feel good? Mm -hmm. And what people and situations might you want to say no to today because that will serve you well? Yeah. And so then I kind of hold the space and I pause. And that's what I have been doing also mm -hmm. um, because it's all well and fine to say something abstractly, right? Because it's like, you know, like I'm feeling good vibes, right? <laughs> or like, I mean, it, it's just a lot. I don't want this to be just white noise. Right. Right. right, fluffy, fluffy yeah. socio-emotional learning. Right, right. Or like social media And trends. there's power. There's power in the reality of do, trying it and doing it and being vulnerable with the students. I mean, yeah. the more vulnerable you are with them, they return it. And the more vulnerable they are with me, I can then become yeah. more myself. That's true. I am enough. I am enough. <laughs> I am enough. And so are you, my friends. So are you. And with that, we out. We out. We out. We out. Dun-dun-na. 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 See you next time, y'all. Thanks to Mia, our producer extraordinaire, and to Clark for this awesome music we got for free, 99. You can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever. You can also email us at damnedifyoudopodcast at gmail.com. It's a mouthful, but you're worth it.